Welcome to the Stanley Street Social Podcast presented by MAP. If you haven't already, make sure you check out MAP Socials because they are on board again with Tom Peacock. Now rebranded as Trinity Racing Team. Uh, of course, they made some sharp kit. Tom's got himself the rainbow bands. And today on the podcast, we've got Wayne a Wayne Swass update. We recorded this mid- through, midway through the year with Wayne... Um, if you don't know his backstory, we uh, did one season season one, maybe our second outside the bubble guest with Wayne. It goes back into his AFL playing days. He played AFL with depression. He didn't disclose that he had depression while he was playing AFL football. And as part of that, as part of him retiring and starting to talk about his mental health, he uh, formed this business called Pucker Up. And uh, within this podcast, we talk to him about how that's going, uh, where that's at, where we're at with Australia and mental health. Um, and the couple of things he does touch on, he talks about a podcast you did with Dave Spindler mm. um, about their work that, or his work that he's doing with uh, Dimension Data. And he also talks about another, uh, Shay Brown, another podcast we did, who uh, Shay now works for Wayne at Pucker Up. Before we get into it, Cambo, week seven, just looking better and better each week. Yeah. Another You've week. even got the Training Peaks app. That's I how far <laughs> things have come. I do have the Training Peaks app. In seven weeks. Uh, fully committed again. Another three sessions under the belt. Tricky sessions, actually. A really tricky week, week seven. In terms of intensity, um, sessions were... Big horsepower? Uh, just intensity, Alex. Very, very intense. Just not working our 20-minute our power, but working our five minute and one minute power as well so you know these training sessions cover all the bases so really good really good week doing the nine hammers was one of the sessions the chores was another one and 14 vice grips was the third session so by the sounds of the sessions they were tricky would have been a fun workshop sitting down and brainstorming the names for these sessions absolutely i mean there's some doozies Mm. i think probably nine hammers is probably one of the the best so far but like i said really worked everything how is how is the one minute condition i reckon you would have fancied yourself as a big one minute man back in the day i think when i did the original test at the start of the program my one minute power i think was almost in the exceptional range (laughs) (laughs) according to the chart i don't make the charts so you know, I haven't uh, I haven't lost too much in the, in the one, and you haven't lost any confidence for all, nah. since you stopped. Well, I think that man, we did that um, that cobbled Strava segment before Paris Roubaix, and I think I was um, towards the pointy end of the of the charts. So you yeah, had nine hammers on the on the comments on my training peaks. I've I've left very solid session, and the last effort was horrific. So a tricky session in the books, Alex. Another week, week seven done. So uh, we're getting close to that final four DP test. In a few weeks, which I'm, I guess I'm looking forward to, but not really. Mm. It's a hard, it's well, a hard hour. Good luck. Enjoy this next week. Thank you, Alex. Uh, and I hope you enjoy the podcast with Wayne. Welcome back to the Stanley Street Social <laughs> Podcast, Wayne. Thanks yeah. for coming back on. It's a pleasure to have me back on, Alex. Thank you very much. I just wanted to start with, how are you going? <laughs> That's a question. That's actually. Uh, it's not a question that actually gets asked of me a lot unless there's some really key people that ask me that regularly, but it's not a question that I get asked 
more broadly, and you've actually made me think. I'm going okay. I'm going it's okay. You have to continually ask yourself. Oh, um, yeah. So um, I'm going well from a mental health perspective because I've made a conscious decision to manage my well-being. So it's something that I do every day. Um, I, there are things that I do every day and um, through the course of the day and at night time, such as prioritising sleep, not drinking alcohol, eating well, exercising, all of those things. And if I, if I do all of those things consistently and they become habits and routine, which they are, then my mental health and wellbeing is in a really good place. But I've had some physical challenges this year, so that's presented a new dynamic. So I've mm. had to manage that and work my way through it. And I guess that's what tends to happen when you get to 50. Have you found that easier, though? No. It's been harder because um, I've always, rightly or wrongly, felt bulletproof. That mm. you know, I don't. I turned 50 last November, so I, I, don't, I don't know what 50 is meant to feel like because I don't feel 50. Mm. And I probably don't behave like I'm 50. But the reality is that I'm getting older, so there are other things now that I need to start to manage and make sure that I'm on top of. What about in the sense of articulating that to a person that's helping you? Do they, is it easier to say, oh, my knee's sore, than I'm struggling mentally? No, no, it's, it, that's, that's not hard for me at all um, because that's what I do. I, tell, I, I talk to the key people in my life, my immediate support network, if I'm if if I'm starting to feel a bit overwhelmed or stressed or if I'm not coping, so because I'm used to saying that, I don't find that in any way, shape, or form a problem. Because if I don't do that, then there's two things that come from me not telling people if I'm not coping emotionally. One is that I'm investing into projecting and pretending to people that I'm all right, and that's a waste of my energy. And secondly, if I don't tell the key people in my life if I'm struggling a bit or if I'm uh, feeling stressed or overwhelmed, I don't give them an opportunity to make informed decisions how, as to how they'd like to support me. So it's really important on both parts that I do that. And pucker up, you just said before, it's getting busier and busier and busier. Yep. Is it good busy? Yeah, it's good busy. Uh, we're about uh, eight weeks away, ten weeks away from launching our health and wellbeing program to corporate Australia. We have a number of businesses that have already put their hand up, um, of which I've just come from a meeting with uh, one of the major airline carriers, and we're really excited about that opportunity. So we haven't we haven't um, we haven't proactively taken taken our program to market yet, but we have been contacted um, by some really large businesses, national businesses here in the country, who have heard about our program or heard about us and um, we, we, were, we were contacted by a particular com- uh, company. I won't, I won't mention their name but they employ 40,000 people across the country. They contacted us because one of the executives watched the documentary on a plane flight here in Australia. So as a result of that person watching the documentary and seeing what we're all about, they've reached out and said, what can you do, what do you do and how can you help our staff? So we're now starting to get ourselves into a position where um, beyond a bike ride, beyond our own podcast series, beyond the presentations that I deliver publicly, we're actually now going, getting ready to go to market with a program which we think has the potential to change the way corporate Australia supports and helps their employees build capacity so they can proactively manage their well-being and mental health as opposed to what happens in most cases and that is we react once the 
proverbials hit the fan. So it's quite exciting, but there's a lot on. Uh, see, how is that program going to plug into a business? So it's a program that helps businesses start their journey. So businesses are encouragingly starting to recognise that the well-being of their staff is really important. But that's not their core business. That's not their area of expertise. So businesses have made the acknowledgement or have recognised that the well-being and mental health of our staff is really important. But what do we do and who can we do it with? So what we'll do is we'll spend time understanding the um, uniqueness of a business, what are the issues, what are the challenges, what are the risks, what are the the barriers, what's preventing people from prioritising their mental health, and then how do we deliver a program which is evidence-based that helps people build the capacity so they can manage and maintain wellbeing proactively as opposed to, as I said before, reacting because there's a crisis or they're overwhelmed or they're incredibly stressed. So our program is education-based and it's about equipping people with the necessary skills and knowledge so they can begin to understand what does wellbeing look like, where do I want my wellbeing to be and how do I get there. Our program helps people build their tools which are relevant for them so they can start to manage that and work towards optimal health. How, how big is Pucker Up now? Uh, it's massive, Alex. We have three employees. <laughs> so the last time I spoke to you, it was just me. Yeah. And I had a... I had uh, a support network of people that weren't part of my business. Shay Brown, who you interviewed mm-hmm. a little while ago, who's played a really important role in what we do. I had access to those people, but um, prior to our bike ride this year starting, we made a decision that we needed to bring in an administrative support person and a program manager for our program. And they've been fantastic um, introductions to our business, which has really allowed me to continue to do what I want to do and that is to get out to businesses, talk to them about the health and well-being of their people and then look for opportunities of aligning and partnering with those businesses to deliver our program. And will this program plug into a sporting team? Can plug into any organisation or business, school, sporting organisation, anything. This Because the reality is that these conditions live and breathe in every entity and every business or organisation around the country. Um, our, 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 our focus in the short term is to take our program to corporate because we think that there is a significant opportunity for us to have a great impact with the businesses and the staff that we work with in order to empower people to manage their wellbeing, which leads to better outcomes. Mm. Can you just reiterate your Pucker-Up's purpose? Yep. So um, our why is we believe every person matters. Every single person matters, irrespective of their background, their beliefs, their experiences, their genders. It doesn't matter. We, we place tremendous value on the life of every person. Our vision is to create the environments that allows every person to have authentic and genuine conversations around mental health and emotional well-being. Our mission unapologetically is to eliminate suicide and how we do that is through education that's what we do and where are we at so we talked to you when you were just starting off you just done your first ride Mm. a year and a half later Mm. how how much has that progressed the business or the issue that we're we're tackling uh, yeah the issue you're tackling uh we have a we have a we have a long way to go we have a incredibly long way to go because we lose, on average, eight people a day to suicide. Um, 
we well up until recently we have approximately sixty five and a half thousand people who are attempting to end their their lives every year in Australia. But there was a recent report uh, which Beyond Blue released in the last week, week and a half. There were thirty thousand ambulance responses for men only in the last 12 months who had either attempted to end their life or who had were having thoughts of ending their life. The number of people that are in crisis, not only men but women, is much bigger than what we thought. So the challenge is increasing. But our appetite and our commitment to challenging that, to changing that, to prevent people from ending their lives, to give people the ability to manage and maintain their well-being as opposed to go through some really difficult, complex experiences is as strong as it's ever been. We love the work that we do. It's hard, it's tough. But, you know, uh, a week ago I delivered a presentation um, at a men's luncheon and um, my phone was on the lectern and I didn't realise this, but during the, my presentation I received two private messages on Instagram from a man who was in the audience and um, his message said, um, you've changed me. And then the second message was, no, you've saved me. I didn't realise, but I spoke to that man 18 months ago and he was thinking about ending his life. We had a conversation offline and he talked to me about uh, his son. And um, I talked to him at that moment 18 months ago about the fact that, in my opinion, our children need their fathers and mothers in their life. And... I didn't know if it helped him, but clearly it did because it gave him a purpose. And I had the pleasure of meeting him after the presentation. Um, we hugged, we laughed, cried, um, we connected and we had a long conversation. I met his dad and I met his new partner. And he was very emotional and, and, and um, it reinforces why we're so passionate about the work that we do. That's, that's just one... A son has his dad, a father has his son, and a partner has her partner in their life. You can do anything in your life that you want, but I don't know of anything else that gives more satisfaction and more reward knowing that the work that Parker Up does is saving lives. It's, it's incredible. Mm. And that's what motivates us every day to get up, roll our sleeves up, and tackle this issue of suicide. Do you go to work bouncing out of bed? Oh, I don't go to work bouncing out of bed because I'm 50, I'm getting old and all that sort of stuff. But no, I, I, wake up, I wake up knowing that every day presents an opportunity for us to have a positive impact on another person. And in some cases, like I've just shared, it's an opportunity to save a person's life. Mm. And, and, and that's, that's why I love what I do. It doesn't happen every day, but it's happening, happening more often. And, and it's, it's, it's what motivates us to want to do more. This is not an easy issue to deal with, but when we have those type of outcomes and we get those type of messages, um, it just it, it fills us up with more motivation and enthusiasm to go and do what we do. And we had our um, documentary uh, shown on Channel 9 earlier this year. And there's, we, we, got, we got inundated with hundreds of messages and there was one message there from a lady who I've never met, and her message went along these lines. I won't get it exactly, but you'll, you'll understand what it meant. 
her message started by saying I was scrolling, um, uh, the, I was flicking through the channels tonight and I stumbled ac- across your documentary. I just want you to know how grateful I am that I stumbled across your documentary because I was planning to kill myself or end my, li- end my life in the next 24 hours. I've parked that decision for now because your documentary has given me hope. Again, I, I don't know what else we could do that has the potential of just giving someone a little bit of hope to say it's okay, it's tough, but you don't have to make that decision. There are other decisions that are available to you. And these are messages that we get regularly. So, um, yeah, we love what we do. Yeah. That number you said before is hard to fathom. It's confronting. What is there one, like one root cause as to... No. It's, it's a complex issue. Um, <clears throat> life's challenging. There, there are a few things. I'm not, I'm not clinically trained, so I'm not an expert in this field, Alex. But what I've observed over a long time is there are, there are a few things that I think may contribute to why people get to a point where they're in crisis and they think that that's their only option they have available. One is hope. If they lose hope we lose a sense of connection. If we lose hope and we lose connection, we feel, and I was guilty of this, we feel and believe that the only option we have available is to end our life. It's not. I also think that there is a tremendous amount of gender conditioning, which is problematic. Of the average eight suicides every day in Australia, six are men. We lose a lot of men because we live in a world and a country where men are conditioned to disconnect emotionally where it's not okay and not acceptable for a man to be vulnerable, to be emotional, to talk, to ask for help and to cry. And, you know, what, what's, what's interesting, you know, I've, I've delivered an, two presentations this week and I, and I ask the same questions, but I'll ask the male audience members if they can remember a time before the age of 10 where they cried, they felt no shame, no guilt, no embarrassment, they ran to mum and dad because they knew that they would help them, they get that comfort, comfort, cleaned up, maybe a band-aid on the, uh, on the elbow, whatever, kiss on the head, pat on the bum or a hug and told that you'd be okay and you'd go back to doing what you're doing. Every member, male member, whenever I ask that question, all put their hand up because they can remember that happening. I'll then ask who's carried that way of behaving as they've got older as a man. 1%. Less than 1% of the audiences that I ask that question of, males in the audience, have continued to behave in that manner. I ask those questions because it proves to me that we are born emotionally connected and expressive like our our fairer sex partners, yet we're conditioned to disconnect emotionally because of our gender. So part of our motivation is to challenge that narrative. What does it mean to be a man? Hmm. Unfortunately, in my opinion, the reason why we lose on average six men a day, in part, can be attributed to the fact that men don't have the capacity or the emotional intelligence, and this is not to be critical, to think, feel and communicate when they're under stress or, like myself, you think that it's weak. And that could be a contributing factor why men don't ask for help, but it's also potentially a contributing factor why some men decide to end their life. And I think that's unfair. So what we're trying to do is reframe the narrative. Why can't a man be strong, stoic, resilient, tough, hardworking, as well as loving, nurturing, empathetic, a listener, a talker and an emotional person? What's the first word we say when we cry? Sorry. We all say it. Well, I'm asking people to, to, to answer. Why are we saying sorry? What are we sorry about? It's part of the human experience. Yet we've grown up and we're conditioned to apologise to the other person because it may have done, may have made them feel uncomfortable. We need to stop it. 
being emotional is part of being a human being. If it's okay and acceptable for girls and women to cry and talk, then give me a plausible reason why it's not okay for men and boys to behave in the same way. Mm. Is that the focal point of your presentations? My presentations are not presentations. This is going to sound really self-indulgent, but it's not my phrase. But I like it. I see myself as a conversation architect. So if you're turning up to any one of my presentations and you're wanting to hear me talk about my journey, you'd be lucky to hear me talk about my journey 20%. What I do is I invest all of my effort into creating a safe space and using my skills and ability to engage people in a discussion. Do that for two reasons. I want people to understand it's not as hard to talk about these things as we think. And secondly, if I can engage them in a conversation, I believe I can give them more things, more tips, strategies, tools to think about, to reflect on and hopefully begin to implement in their life. If I stand there for 45 minutes and talk to people about my experience, that's just me talking. I'm talking to the audience. I'm more interested and I'm more passionate about how do I get this group of people engaged in a discussion so they can leave the conversation knowing it's not that hard and these are some of the things that I can start to think about so that, that allows me to manage my mental health and emotional well-being. Hmm. Yeah. Where's sport at? You're immersed in the AFL. Yep. So lot. maybe let's talk about that. Yep. Where I follow the sport but I'm probably not as engaged as you are, I'm nowhere near as engaged as you are. Mm. But it seems seems to be these peaks and flows, a lot of players talking about it now. Mm-hmm. But then it's still got that blurred lines when you read the comments you read, how it's engaged on social media. I wouldn't read anything or put any weight to a lot of things that are said on social media when it comes to this because ignorance and a complete lack of understanding is no excuse to be disrespectful to other people or judge other people, criticise other people, label other people. That's stigma, Mm. which really is discrimination. To answer your question, though, where's sport at? I think we still have a long way to go. Um, And and AFL is slowly making some important first steps towards beginning to really address the issue. The AFL, to their credit, is currently in market for a person that will become the figurehead for the mental health platform and strategy for the AFL industry, which I think is a significant step forward. But that person alone can't tackle the issue. So hopefully that's the beginning of other decisions to create a team of people, experienced, experts, knowledgeable, professionally trained, that can create a framework, a policy and a culture that supports players, coaches, administrators, and more broadly, educates the community. Um, but I don't this is my personal view we're not doing enough we're not doing enough Um, the number one the number one concern in the most recent AFL Players Association survey what's the the number one concern across the entire playing group was not financial was not retirement was not injuries it was mental health clearly I've seen the report it is comfortably so far ahead of all the other issues That's the collective voice of our current playing group. We need to listen to that carefully. And we need to start to invest into resources, training, education and support so that we can help players manage psychological injuries in exactly the same manner as we help players manage physical injuries. But there's a 
significant piece of work in order to bridge that gap. Mm. And my greatest concern, I've said this before, my greatest concern is that we'll lose a player to suicide before the industry really gets serious and that'll be too late. Have you talked to them? I talked to the Players Association and the AFL with my current chairman in 2006 and we sat with them and talked to them about the seriousness of the issue. That's 13 years ago. We're slowly starting to see some change. Mm. We need more. It's the biggest issue affecting our industry. And the other exciting thing is, Alex, if we get this right, imagine the impact we could have in the community if we begin to address and deal with mental health within our key stakeholder group. What message does that send the community, our supporters who are living with these conditions? We can, like we've done with racism, fundamentally shift the expectations and attitudes towards mental health like we have with racism. And they did that through education. When we educate people, we give them ability to make different decisions. Yeah. What about as a, like a player, as an individual, thinking about them, how, because they're super young as mm. AFL players, normally a cyclist is 23 at least, 18-year-old yep. boys and girls coming to the sport, mm. it's a lot to manage. What, what can they do to kind of experience yeah, reduce that risk. It's hard for the kids because all you want to do is be successful. So you're prepared to do anything and sometimes you're prepared to compromise. Because you know what it's like as an 18-year-old. It's like, I'm going to be... And you think about, I'm going to be a footballer no matter what. Yep. And uh, you'll do whatever you can to give yourself the best opportunity to be successful. But the the fundamental issue that I see with a lot of elite-level sports and I think cycling's any different to AFL, is that we will go and get a 17-year-old male or female athlete, we'll take them out of their home environment, we'll put them into a really demanding, competitive, intense business, which elite sport is, and what we do is we surround them with the, the, the coaches, the resources that help that talented individual become the best athlete they can. Now, I'm assuming that riding as a pro cyclist at the elite level is stressful. It's limited opportunities, there's high stakes, being paid uh, well financially, but the pressure to succeed, the pressure to deliver is unrelenting, especially when you're on the bike. It's no different to a football field. AFL footy at the elite level is incredibly stressful. But what happens in sport, and I think this is what happens in business too, is we, we recruit someone in to fill a role so that they can be successful. And if they're successful as a business or a business owner, we're also successful. But the majority of the focus is on how do we help this person through our program, through our training, the education and the opportunities they get, how do we help them turn from an immature, developing, very talented athlete to become the best? So we wrap them in this environment that helps them hopefully be the best athlete they can. But really, when you sit back and you look at that, we're only equipping them with the skills and tools to be able to deal with stress in one area of their life, on the bike or on a footy field. What are we doing to equip them to deal with stress in life? So how do we help people develop the the emotional intelligence, the toolbox and the skill set and the language that allows them to deal with challenges that aren't related to their professional career or they might be related to their professional career? Example, I'm in my last contract. 
as a football player or a cyclist. I'm coming out of contract. I'm getting towards the end of my career. Will I get another career? What's the financial future hold? I've got a long-term injury. Will I get back on the bike or will I get back on the football field? My relationship has just finished. My parents have separated. I'm living overseas or I'm living interstate. I'm disconnected. I'm not connected. I'm not close to my key family and friend network. These are all potential challenges that athletes will face. So you might have a bad race or you might have a bad game. Who are we to make a criticism or judgment on someone who's had a bad race or a bad game because what's happened on the bike or on the football field may be influenced by what's happening in their personal life. Yet we give them the skills to deal with what's happening in their sporting arena but we're not equipping them with the skills or the knowledge to deal with stressing life. Hmm. We're missing the mark. We've got to train the athlete and we need to train and support the person equally. Have you seen it done well anywhere or at least done? Yeah, I haven't seen it but I've heard of it. Mm. I think I messaged you about your interview with um, the Dimension Data. Yeah. Yeah, I can't remember his name. David. David. Yep. Fascinating discussion. And listening, listening, listening to that interview, I wanted to be part of that team. I wanted him to be part of my coaching team or a support person because everything he spoke about was what I would have appreciated his ability to have an awareness about, no, this is not a cycling conversation, this is a life discussion. Investing time into developing relationships with his riders, getting to know them as individuals, getting to know them as athletes, checking in with them regularly, checking in with the rest of the team. What they're doing is they are investing into creating the culture that, in my opinion, based on the short interview, that allows the athlete to be the best athlete they can, but also recognising that there's a person behind the athlete. So how do we support both? And I, I think that I think that model is you can replicate that, hmm. but it takes a level of leadership and commitment to say we have a responsibility and obligation to support the athlete, but also support the person. And how do we do that? That I feel flows into team a lot, uh, and I've heard you talk about how you the enjoyment changed from when you were at North Melbourne to when you transferred to Sydney. Mm. What, what was the main difference for you between that transition and how did the team work at that point? Team worked well. We had a really good team, both at North and both at Sydney. But the dynamic changed because when I moved to Sydney, I had a life outside of footy. While living in Melbourne and playing... My life was football. I never got away with it. I couldn't get away from it because it was always there. Everybody knew, a lot of people knew who you were. They knew what you did. They saw you as a football player and I saw myself as a football player. I didn't like the attention that came with being a footy player. I found it suffocating. So the decision to move to Sydney not only helped me finish my career off at a higher, a consistently higher level with regards to my form and ability to perform well. But I fell in love with the game again because the moment I finished a training session or a game and I walked out of the SCG, I was no one. I wasn't a football player because no one knew who I was. So I could go down the beach and surf. I could go for dinner with my wife. I could go and catch up with a mate. I could do whatever I wanted to do. And it was actually liberating because, yes, I had a football career, but also was able to enjoy life. And I think sometimes that gets lost in the business of elite sport. It took me seven years post-retirement to work out who I was. 
because for a long time I thought that I was a football player and in part I was. But that's not a true reflection of everything that I am. But unless you have that separation where you can fulfil your career, enjoy your sport, but then have a life outside of it, it's hard to find that balance, mm. especially in cities like Melbourne and Adelaide and Perth. Yeah. Mm. Do you think you could have found that if you stayed in Melbourne? No, because I'd lost it. I hated the game by the time I left. I didn't like the game. I'd fallen out of love with it. wasn't passionate about it. And I'm a passionate person. If I'm not passionate about something, I can't force myself to do it. It's too hard. If someone came to you, plays for Melbourne, said, I need to find something outside of the game, what would you recommend to them? Pursue it. Study. Part-time work. Go and meet with people. You know, one of my, one of my regrets through my footy career is I had the opportunity to meet with so many sponsors and business owners and entrepreneurs. Well, for my entire footy career, I saw them as an inconvenience because I had to talk to them. If I had my time again, I'd network the crap out of them. Hey, Alex, hey, it was good to meet you the other week. Do you mind if I just come and pick your brain? You're a business owner. You've you know gone from humble beginnings. You started a business 10 years ago. Now you've got a, a business that's turning over 100 million bucks. What could I learn from you? Could you be a mentor? Do you have networks that you might be able to introduce me into an area that I've got a level of interest in? What doors can you open up? I didn't, I didn't recognise the opportunity that I had. So if someone came to me and said, what would you do? I would talk to them about, at the age of 29, I made a decision to go back to school in Sydney. I went to Sydney University and started a commerce degree. I went through a couple of really difficult periods of where I lost, lost form, lost all form and all confidence. The break that I got from going to uni and not having to talk about footy but talking to people about commerce or accounting or whatever subject that we were doing at the time actually gave me an outlet where I wasn't ruminating or thinking about my poor form all the time. I had an outlet outside of footy which gave me some freedom just to park footy for now, concentrate on my study and what happened over a period of um, a few months was I noticed that once I finished my study, I started feeling better about going to footy and I worked my, throat, my way back into some good form. So I think it's really important because it gives you balance, it gives you perspective, but it also gives you an outlet to get away from the day-to-day grind of being an AFL or an elite-level sports person. And I think the other thing is you're preparing yourself for transition post-retirement because you're working on an exit strategy. Don't wait until you retire. Hmm. It's interesting because that's exactly exactly what Shay said when we did our podcast. Then I listened to what she's yeah. been telling me for two and a yeah. half years. Yeah. I, she, I mean, she's a of enormous respect and and I, I love her um, because of everything that she's done for me personally and for Pucker Up. She's been a significant contributor to where Pucker Up is today. But I also admire her for her. Um, Ability to look beyond the sport um, and think about... And then the way that she looks at herself and the way that she sees herself. Athlete, part of that, but it doesn't define her. And she's, she's, she, she's a person for me that, that looks beyond the netball court. What else is out there? What else do I want to do? Um, you know, who am I beyond the netballer or now a cyclist? And yeah. a bloody good cyclist, by the way, for someone who's only just taken up the sport. But I think she's got a great outlook on life and it's not surprising with what she's been able to achieve. 
I should have got you to do the intro to the podcast <laughs> we did with that. That was a lot more inspirational than my welcome. Well, well you know what was interesting? We, um, as you know, we did our second suicide prevention bike ride earlier this year and Shay was on it. I heard her say that uh, she challenged me and she said, we need more girls on the bike ride. So I said, okay, you're one of them. But I thought, and I've told Shay this, that I thought I knew Shay Brown well prior to the bike ride. The level of respect and admiration that I felt for her just watching what she was capable of doing and what she did do, given the fact that she'd spent three months riding a push bike. She was three months on a road bike. Doesn't even have the terminology. Pack rides, what are they? <laughs> Bunchies, chain mark, grease mark on the, on the calves, all of, that, all of that stuff. But the competitiveness of this amazing woman was incredible. There were people who have been, males that have been riding their bikes 10, 15 years. On day four, we rode up Hotham from Wangaratta. She was the eighth person to the top of Mount Hotham and she's only been on a bike for three months. Says a lot about the person. Her ability to ride a bike, to, to ride well, and she's not, she's not someone that's out there to beat people, but she's a competitor. I had the privilege, because I wasn't able to do all of the 10 days, of driving one of the support cars. My admiration and respect for her as a person, but also as an athlete, through the roof. Mm. And because of that experience, I saw a different version of her, and that's why I think so fondly and um, I have enormous respect for her because of what I saw during that 10 days. Mm. Yeah. Are you learning... So you're running the, your podcast at the same time, yep. the Pucker Up podcast, yep. if you want to search it up on the podcast store. Are you learning a lot from that? Yeah, I, I, look, it's... Because it's you, just, you just interview super intelligent people on specific issues. Yeah, people that have got either a level of expertise or they work in a particular field and the whole essence of series two is every episode is a tool or a strategy that we want to educate our listeners and our community about so they can then make informed decisions as to whether or not they want to think about investing into that tool or strategy all we're doing if you think about a toolbox every episode is a potential tool that someone can go yep I like that idea, it might be mindfulness, meditation, whatever it is. Now I know a bit more about it, I can start to make more informed decisions, which really means that we're helping people put their tools in their toolbox. And if we can achieve that, we're empowering them to, to take care of their own wellbeing. And um, aside from that wanting to help other people, one of the other benefits is that I'm educating myself. And I didn't realise until earlier this year, talking to Simone Austin, who is a dietitian with Hawthorne and the Australian cricket team, um, is that... Our gut health is our second... Our, our gut and the bacteria in our gut is our second brain. And the health of our bacteria influence our mood. Our gut health influences our mood and influences our brain. I didn't know that. And I think I'm reasonably knowledgeable when it comes to most, most things. But thankfully, because of that episode with Simone, I now have a better appreciation of... Gut bacteria plays a really important role in how I feel and how I think about myself and the way that my life is going. So, again, making subtle changes to change my diet so that I give my gut the opportunity to have the bacteria that it needs. Mm. Yeah. Is, is that the one that stands out to you? No, oh, I, 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 uh, that, that's, that's one because that resonates with me because I learnt a lot about that personally. 
But I interviewed um, Dr. David Cunningham recently. Uh, we haven't um, we haven't uploaded this particular episode, but he's a sleep specialist, mm. and it was a fascinating discussion. Um, and it was fascinating because I think there's so much great information there that people can digest and it's relatable. And the interesting, the big takeaway for me was that, you know, we've probably all felt pressure, Alex, but, you know, you need seven or eight hours good sleep every night and it needs to be a solid, once you go to bed, it's got to be seven or eight hours, bang, and that's the, that's the utopia number. Well, listening to David, who's worked in this area for a long time, Seven or eight hours may not work for me as an individual or you. If it's six, if it's five, whatever it is, you need to try and work out what is appropriate for you. And what happens is we've fallen into this trap of it's almost like we've got to be successful at getting sleep. So what he means by that is the framework that we're looking um, at our sleep is flawed because if we don't get eight hours sleep, then I've failed. No, you haven't. But that's the expectation. We've conditioned ourselves to thinking, if I don't get seven or eight hours sleep, then I'm not successful at sleeping. I'm failing at sleeping. No. And I used to have this attitude, and I shared this with David in the episode. I said, I love a a mid-afternoon nap. Just love it. But if I sleep for an hour during the day, then it takes me ages to go to sleep. And the way that he reframed it was, okay, how many hours do you think you need of good sleep for you to feel rested? Six to seven, if I can get seven, great, but I could do with six. He goes, okay, then if you have a nap for an hour, then all you need to get during the night is five. You've got your six. So his ability to reframe it in a way, it's not a competition, you're not, you're not failing, uh, you don't have to succeed at it, but you understand what works for you and you bank whenever you can get quality sleep. If it's an hour during the day, you've banked it. So I don't need to get six or seven at night, just work on trying to get five. And what are the habits, the routines that you introduce to give yourself the best opportunity of sleeping? And one of the fundamental difference in decision that I've made is that uh, 409 days ago, I stopped drinking alcohol because it impacts my ability to sleep. Sleep is more important to me than drinking alcohol. So that's a decision that I've made to give myself the opportunity of getting consistently good sleep. This is a bit of a personal question too. So listen to all these podcasts, the, the interviews you do. I think I've taken one. One was my favourite where the guy was talking about the three things you appreciate ah, throughout the day. Hugh Van Kylenberg. Yeah. Yeah. I was trying to find it this morning on yeah. the store. I couldn't find it. But it's uh, gratitude, that is empathy and... I want to say resilience. That's the, that, that's the only one that I can say I've actually applied. I think they're all great ideas. Yep. But you can, when you start a job full-time, you start doing things after work, it's very easy to put those other exercises aside. Mm-hmm. Do you have a way that you go, all right, this is how I'm going to mm. commit to this? Yeah. Um, and before I answer that, I, I, I'd say if there's one episode that's resonated with you, fantastic. Hmm. You don't have to... Not everyone's going to resonate with you. It's really about sharing the content and hopefully something resonates with people. So don't feel bad about that. Um, One of the things that I hear a lot is I don't have time. But how I respond to that is we're all busy. Life's busy and we get busy being busy. 
But I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm to answer it by asking you a couple of questions. Mm. Would you be prepared to compromise your physical health? No. Why not? Yeah. I've always done it. I see a direct Why is it important to you, though? You feel good. Yeah. Your day is better. You're more efficient. So there's yeah. value. You see value and importance in relation to your physical health. So with that in mind, you invest into your physical health, don't you? Mm. Yeah. How often? Most days. Right. So there's if a not every day. There's a level of discipline and commitment that you've consciously made because of the value and importance that you've associated with your physical health. So you make time. Mm. So what prevents you from doing the same thing, applying the same strategies and discipline and structure to finding time in our busy lives so that you can not only continue to invest into your physical health, but start investing into our mental health? Mm. See, and this is not a criticism, but I've done this for 15 years, and all human beings see the value and importance with physical health two of the overriding reasons why we invest into our physical health above and beyond what you've already shared is that we don't want to die any sooner than we have to and we don't want to get sick so it's a preventative strategy you own a car no you don't good on you (laughs) why do we put put our cars in for a six-month service they last longer it's good for preventative preventative we don't want the cars to break down we need to make sure they're performing consistently Human beings invest into physical health because it's important and they place value on it. We apply the same strategies and principles, loosely speaking, to our vehicles. We are preventing it from getting sick. We don't want it to break down. But we're not applying the same principles and strategies to our mental health because we're busy or we don't know what to do. So it's about, it's about sitting back <coughs> pardon me, and looking at it this way. This is not good for a podcast, but I'm pointing to my physical body. This is important. It's important for you. It's important to everybody. We invest Mm. into this. We're not prepared to compromise our physical health because we know if we do, we could get sick or we could die at some point. And keep doing that because it's really important. But where's our motor? It's not our heart. Our heart is our fuel pump. It pumps our fuel to all parts of our body. Our motor is under our skull. It's at the front of our head. So if we're not prepared to compromise our physical health, we need to really start to pay attention to our emotional health and our mental health by investing, by being disciplined and structured and going, okay, what can I do to help me manage my mental health? What can I do to improve my mental health? What are the things that I can do that allow me to manage my well-being? Because through personal experience, if you ignore your mental health, it will manifest itself physically. I'm going to say that again because it's really important. If we ignore our mental health, it will manifest itself physically. So if we don't want to get physically sick, why would we ever consciously choose to ignore our mental health, which could lead us to become sick? So the connection when it comes to health is physical and emotional. And part of what we do is to help people make the connection. You're doing it in two areas of your life, your physical health and your cars. Now extend it to your mental health. So what do I do to hopefully answer, answer your question? I prioritise my sleep, I eliminate alcohol, I eat, I don't eat red meat. Um, I'm working towards eliminating all chicken and seafood. I eat a lot of Japanese. And the reason for that is that um, my wife has invested a lot of time and effort into educating herself about plant-based diets and the benefits of that. 
Um, and I see personally, this is only me, I'm not trying to preach to anybody, but I see the value and benefit in, in eating a predominantly plant-based diet as opposed to processed foods. Get online and do some research about the impact of processed food and how that impacts our overall health and our gut health. It's not helpful. People need to make their own decisions, but they're decisions that I've made. Um, I exercise a lot, as you know. I'm, I'm just, I love cycling. I love it because of the physical benefits. But to be honest with you, the reason why I love cycling is because it's meditative. I love a solo ride. I live in the Macedon Ranges. I love getting out in the Macedon Ranges, riding up Mount Macedon on my own. During summer, five o'clock in the afternoon, the mountain comes alive. And it's just my space to be with my thoughts and myself. And I find it just rejuvenates. I love it. I'm, I'm, I'm connected to nature, I'm connected with my thoughts, I'm not being distracted by emails or phone calls, family, friends or business. I prioritise my mental health by cycling. And the other thing that I do is I talk to key people when things are good and when things aren't good. I, tell my, I, tell my, I, t I talk to my support network, my immediate support network, when I'm under pressure. Because sharing it relieves some of the stress but sharing it also gives the key people in my network an understanding of what I'm dealing with so they can make decisions about how they support me. Mm. And that I extend that to my chairman so that he knows that his CEO might be under stress, might be get, working his way through a bout of anxiety, which I did twice last year. I tell him, he's been chairman. He needs to know that I'm under pressure so he can support me and get other, other resources around me if I need it. Mm. How many days have you been without alcohol? 409. 409. Anzac Day Eve 2018 was the last day I drank and it was, it was horrible. Sport has a funny relationship with alcohol. We've sold our soul. Generate revenue. It's not a good message though. And then also athletes. Yep. Like you, I don't know what your relationship was like, but it was, like a, it was a love-hate thing. Mm -hmm. It was, from one perspective, it was the best team bonder the best release yep. the best everything from the last three months of racing yep but then you also hated it because it was bad for your performance your training the next day wasn't as good yep I know Plus, there's psychology associated with drinking too because mm. if you know you shouldn't be drinking yet you drink then you beat yourself up the next day for drinking yeah so there's an emotional component to it my relationship with alcohol was I've never, never, I've never, I've never drank alcohol to enjoy the taste or the experience. I drank to get absolutely polax. I used it as a coping mechanism. One of the reasons why I've chosen, apart from wanting to prioritise sleep, is that alcohol is a depressant. It's a drug. We throw our arms up in disgust and we're horrified. And, the drug dealers that are peddling ice and meth and crack and cocaine and heroin and speed and all that stuff, they're really bad people. Marijuana, they're bad drugs. They are, they cause a lot of damage. But we have another drug called alcohol which is legalised and accepted by the community which is causing just as much if not more damage in the community. Where's the outrage? There's none. Because it's acceptable. So... I, I, I see alcohol doesn't help us cope. Alcohol is something that is acceptable and we just do. 
Are we taught to be responsible users of alcohol when we're young? No. The Australian ways, mate, have another one. She'll be right. Go hard. Play hard. Party hard. Which we did. But we don't educate ourselves. We don't educate our next generations. I do think there is some education now with the younger generations coming through. But when I came through, my role models when I was 16 playing senior football in country Victoria were men that were 25 to 35. And they, they drink all night. And I just, OK, well, that's what you do, so this is what I do. Um, so I, 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 just made it, I just made my own decision. What I've realised in the last 409 days is I can cope with stress in my life without using alcohol. I recognise and acknowledge now that I used alcohol as a coping mechanism to unwind, relax, de-stress, zone out. But if I'm being brutally honest, change me as a person. And I don't like the person I am when I drink. So I'd rather not be that person. Um, and I'd rather just sacrifice alcohol in my life because it makes my life better. Probably to your point that it's socially acceptable, but it seems like it's the thing to go to for a team building exercise. Because yeah, it relaxes it's, people. Yeah. Right? Um, I, 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 don't, I don't necessarily agree with that now. But one of the things that I... Um, good mate of mine who went through his own mental health challenges um, that I supported him with a few years back. We started having real conversations. He reached out to me and said, I'm struggling, can you help me? And I said, of course I would. So I reckon over the course of two years, I really got to know him. And one of the, it, it, it was a realisation. I said to him one day, we had, we had a lot of conversations no alcohol, cafe, at home, at his house, whatever it was. And I said to him, I said to him, I reckon about six months into the two-year journey that I went on with him, I said, I realise now that over the 11 years that we played footy, I never knew you. He said, what do you mean? I said, every one of our interactions, every time we were together, we were pissed. I don't know, I didn't know you. Without alcohol, the six months prior, I'd got to know him. And I wouldn't say I feel guilty about it, but it made me realise that so many relationships are superficial. We drink because we're anxious or we're uncomfortable, we're not comfortable in a social setting, so we drink to relax ourselves and then we you know, come into the conversation. But and that's exactly what I did through my entire footy career. But if I'm really honest about it, there's probably only a handful of people that I really genuinely got to know because I had meaningful discussions that weren't laced with alcohol. And for me, that's, that's a bit shallow, that I didn't respect the friendships enough, and, and probably them, but I can't make their decisions for them, but all of my relationships were involving alcohol. I wasn't comfortable with that, and that's probably the realisation. One of the realisations that, that I've come to is that I'd rather sit down and get to know people and have honest conversations. I don't need alcohol to have a discussion. That's only my choice. I'm not, I don't want anybody to think that I'm trying to preach to them. You make mm. your own calls. It's your life, your responsibility. Yeah. And if people want to support, pucker up in your vision, in your mission? Yep. So I'll answer that by saying this. We had... Uh, the bike ride this year was amazing and we made a decision to decal our three-tonne truck. You may have seen the pucker-up yep. trucker, Mick, who did an amazing job. 
And the whole idea for the truck was this, that we wanted to put a black decal on both sides in the back and there was a simple message in white writing on all three sides and that was, I'm signing this truck to start a suicide prevention conversation. And the aim was to fill all of the sides. So we started earlier this year with no signatures. By the time we got back to Port Melbourne at the end of 10 days, the, the truck was completely covered. And what was uh, really nice was the number of people over the 10 days, like the truck took on its own life. You know, the pucker up trucker became his personality. He was doing his own interviews, all that sort of stuff. But the whole purpose of the truck was to give people a reason to come into the space and begin to have a discussion. And the number of people that came up and said, oh, we love what you're doing, we're fantastic, how do we support Parker Up? Where can we give you money? And our answer was, we don't want your money. People would sit back and they go, well, what do you mean? We go, no, we don't want your money. And they go, well, okay, well, what do you want? What do you want? <laughs> and all we said was, take this home and start having the conversation. So how people can help us is by coming into this discussion, starting to get an understanding of how we can talk about mental health and emotional wellbeing why suicide prevention is individually and as a, as a country across the whole Australian landscape. It's a shared responsibility. We are all touched by suicide either directly or indirectly. We all know someone directly or indirectly that's living with mental health conditions or has or will. So by, by supporting us, you're giving us greater reach. You're helping us spread these conversations to more people, more families, more communities and more places. And every time we have a discussion like this, what we're doing is we're normalising these topics for other people who are going through it. And more importantly, every time we have this conversation, the chances are when you upload this podcast, someone will listen to it who's in this situation right now. We're letting them know that we're here prepared to have this discussion that they're not isolated, they're not on their own, they're not crazy for going through these experiences because there's a lot of us that do. So, so the power of this discussion could positively change another person's life. The power of this discussion, Alex, could potentially save a person's life. The other, the other benefit and outcome of these discussions is that when we have these type of conversations, we're not forcing it down anybody's throat. But when you create these discussions in safe spaces, what happens is you are inviting people into the discussions themselves. And our bike ride is the greatest example of that. It's fundamentally changed the lives of people that came on our bike ride because of what we were able to create. All we do is we create the space, we open up the conversation, and we invite people in. There are people, without naming them, that prior to our bike ride this year would never have thought it possible to be completely open and honest about life's experiences that they have gone through. And some of these people have carried tremendous burdens for the majority of their life and have never talked to anybody outside of their wife or their husband about what they've gone through. They shared that with our group and that's liberated them to go on with their life and be honest and open about what it is that they're living with and what they're dealing with. And it also gives those other people around them that heard those stories the opportunity to decide whether or not they want to support them. That's what we do. We're pretty good at it. Thanks, Wayne. Thanks, Alex. Appreciate your time and all the best. Thank with you. Parker up.